Well, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've created and you've allowed us to enjoy so many good things and you brought us back once again to hear from you and to receive your good gifts. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we, kind of st- as we study this passage of the fall of man and what sin and temptation took place there, that we would really grapple with the, the gravity of our own sin and be able to see how temptation looks in our own lives and that we are constantly being rescued by you, Lord, and having their promises just constantly inundate us even after we sin. Like the moment after we sin, you're constantly there and your grace is ready to lift us up again. And so we pray that you would encourage us with those truths today. In your son's name we ask. Amen. All right, so we're back to the third week of our class. And we're discussing, again, finding yourselves in God's story. And just to briefly recap what we've kind of gone over before, um, the reason why we're discussing this, the kind of understanding God's story and how our story kind of folds into His, is that we're all part of some story. There's always some kind of vision of the good life that we're believing, that we're being told. Um, And it's not a question of whether or not we're being discipled in something, as we said, but what is discipling us? What is teaching us? What kind of vision of what it means to be man are we believing? And is it like the myth of individualism that very much affects us, or consumerism, where what we own and possess and what we have is what defines us. So what are those things that are really capturing our hearts and our imaginations? And God's Word has this capacity and this ability to break all those things down and show us the the gravity of our sin, but then also God is ready to show us His grace and His mercy. And... That, those are the, kind of the four D's that we've been going over this, this school semester, the school year, is going to be the drama of redemption, which is what we're talking about now, and how that leads to a new vision of what it means to be man, what it means to be humans in this world, what sin looks like, and how God is redeeming us, and how that leads us to praise and thanksgiving and, and prayer. And that brings about a whole new kind of life of discipleship. And that's something that we constantly need to be rehearsing. That's constantly something that we need to be having someone from outside of us telling us because our hearts aren't wired for the gospel. Our hearts are wired for what we talked about, this kind of vision of the law, of, of following this pattern that God has established in creation and trying to bring heaven on earth in our own way. That's kind of what we're wired for. And so we're constantly trying to do that but the gospel is a totally different word. And the gospel is something that we couldn't conjure up or make up on our own, which is why we need outside voices to speak that again. That's why God had created his church. And that's why God has given us his fellow believers and all kinds of things to get that down into our hearts, into our imaginations. Um, and so the church, like as we said, is like this cosmic drama team where we're rehearsing the vision of heaven and that good life that God is actually giving to us in Christ. And he has all the props that he needs and he's giving us the script in his word 
to tell us what is truly true of us, what is really real of those who have faith in Christ, even though our hearts are going to tell us something different. And so the goal is, again, as we said last week, as we see all the major pieces, the puzzle pieces of Scripture kind of come together and where those things come together, when we see God really at work in those passages, that's when we see how He's at work in our own lives. Um, So, as we heard from last week, what it means to be God's image bearers. We heard last week that, once again, that we're not created by accident. Um, If you remember from two weeks ago, what were some of the things that we said uh, were different about the creation story from maybe the ancient stories of the past or even the stories that we may hear? You guys remember we were talking about how different it was from this creation story. Um, I think any any thoughts about how how those things were so different? Right, it was purposeful. It didn't come out of chaos, and there it wasn't this violent struggle, where violence is what defined the essence of of, of reality for so many different ancient religions, and even for people today, where it's survival of the fittest, a dog-eat-dog world. And that's kind of the vision of creation or the doctrine, as it were, the drama that so many people kind of unassumingly adopt. And that that defines a lot. If If you think that at the heart of what it means to be human in this world is violently struggling against your neighbor to get what you want, that's just going to change everything. That's going to change the, the game. Um, but the creation story shows us a sovereign creator who's existed from eternity, who didn't need anything, but he creates us for a specific purpose. Uh, he creates us for a specific goal, and that was so that we could share in his love. We could share in his generosity. And God is actually creating this whole thing. He's creating all this, this, these kingdoms and all these creature kings to govern those places because he's creating this wonderful garden, this lavish place for us to live in, and he's giving us more than we need. He's giving us all these wonderful things and he's spreading this feast for us in many ways. He's, he's, he's making room for us in the world. And so he's like the most hospitable God that we could even imagine. He's this God who just like is making room for us. And that's what the whole Bible is this like amazing picture of. Um, so last week we talked about what it meant to be created in God's image, that it was following God himself started, where God is working six days and then he's resting on the seventh day. Man was supposed to be, man and woman was supposed to be these reflectors reflecting back to God that dominion where his goodness was being shed abroad over the whole world. And that dominion is specifically defined as service. He's a servant ruler. Man, Man and woman were meant to be these servant rulers who were cultivating the garden, cultivating the whole world, and eventually bringing it into this Sabbath and bringing heaven down to earth. And that's what man was supposed to do. And 
bringing God's glory that he had in the highest heavens and making that cover the whole world. And that is the very nature of what it means to be human. And so when we fail to actually use God's gifts and use his world to bring him glory, we actually, things start falling apart. We, we don't actually use those good gifts rightly. Um, but we're constantly seeking that even today to try to bring about some kind of utopia or some kind of, that kind of heaven on earth through our own action. And that's just how we're wired now. Uh, and that's why we constantly need to be rehearsing in the gospel. Um, all right. So God created us for that specific purpose, for that peace and that love and justice to share in His goodness and all over the world. Um, and we're created with that goal of bringing praise to Him in everything that we do, to love God and enjoy Him forever. And that, so that brings us to the, kind of the foundation of what we see in Genesis 2 and this cosmic treason uh, that happens. So there's the three parts that we'll talk about today. There was the temptation, there was the actual treason, and then the kind of estrangement or the death that happened after that. So there was this, this lap garden that God creates. He creates all these wonderful things for man to enjoy and delight in. And he creates all these things for our good. And because it's, it, it's bringing us to praise God and, and wonder and awe for what he's done. And God created Adam as his right-hand man. Uh, that out of all the creatures that God made, he chose to make man in his image. And he points man and woman as the second in command in the whole universe. And he gives him those specific tasks. But he also gives him that one prohibition that we briefly talked about last week. He says, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and, and the heavens over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was the creation mandate that God gave Adam and Eve. These jobs that he delegates to them. But he also gives them that one negative rule that you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so what God required of Adam and Eve was very simple, and he clearly stated it. It wasn't confusing or unclear. He was to oversee and expand and cultivate and nourish and guard God's garden, the Garden of Eden, and then basically the whole world. And But everything that he was supposed to do was for that single goal of spreading God's generosity and spreading God's love about the whole world. And so to make sure he didn't lose sight of that, he places this one tree, a single reminder in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree was an ever-present reminder, as we said last week, that at, to Adam and Eve, that God is in control 
that God is the sovereign king. He's the creator king of the whole universe. And he's the boss in many ways. It's a monument that was declaring to them that one thing. That who is in charge. That everything in the universe only has meaning because it's connected to him. Um, And so if we try to disconnect all these wonderful things from the Creator, it leads to death. It doesn't lead to human flourishing. It doesn't lead to our happiness. It doesn't lead to what we were actually made for. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that constant reminder. And it wasn't just like this arbitrary rule. It wasn't an arbitrary thing, but it pointed Adam and Eve to to God and who was truly in control of the universe and upholding everything. Um, So this relationship that Adam and Eve had with God is what we call a covenant. And specifically, the covenant that he makes, we call it a covenant of works. And it's simply just because God said, do this work and you will receive eternal life. You will make, if you remember from last week, we said that the whole goal was to bring heaven to earth and that was symbolized and pictured in the tree of life that we see in this passage. That if you obey these stipulations and you don't eat of that one tree, then eternity is the reward. Eternity. So even though Adam was created good in God's image and God said that everything was very good, he still held out some further glory for him in the garden that was seen in the tree of life. That he was going to work and bring about God's generosity to the whole world and bring eternity to everything. What we see at the end of the Bible is the new heavens and new earth. That's what Adam was going for. Um... So this covenant, just broadly speaking, is it's not a contract like we think of it between people today where something's financially advantageous for one party so they come together and they make money. No, this was like a sacred vow. And it was like this, it's much more, I guess we would say, religious and, and all-encompassing that this was his allegiance, kind of like a king to a servant where this person was coming before a king and laying his life and saying, I am yours. This is the kind of sacred thing that he had before God. And it was this fundamental agreement between them. Um, and the terms, like as we said before, it state that if Adam obeys and serves God, he will have earned that eternal life. But the opposite is also true. That if he disobeys, and eats of that tree, he will have earned or merited eternal death, eternal damnation for that act of treason. And success was within Adam's grasp. Adam and Eve could do that. You know, after the fall, we can't. We can't reach out to that and try to succeed because of sin. He was perfect, and God gave him everything he needed, all the props he needed to succeed. And so that's the covenant of works. And so the question that we're kind of like, the whole beginning of the Bible is building up to, is will Adam and Eve 
succeed? Will they accomplish what God gave them to do? Or will they be disobedient servants and try to have a party without God? Will they try to have a feast on their own, on their own terms, and try to kick God out of His own garden? And that brings us to Genesis 3, specifically today. If you guys want to open your Bibles to Genesis 3, we'll read verses 1 through 7. So one day, we're having this, this wonderful garden scene happening, and they're just walking about the garden, and they're just enjoying life, and they just come across this visitor, this person who's instantly, told, we're told, is this crafty serpent. And he comes to Eve, and he begins talking to her, and from the very first words that we hear that he speaks, it uh, becomes clear that he doesn't belong in God's garden. Um, the serpent is coming in and he's putting instant doubt about what God had done the first two chapters. And the serpent asks, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now what kind of question is that? Uh, as we think about it, what do you think Satan is specifically doing here when he asks that kind of question? What kind of doubts is he sowing into, our, into Adam and Eve's mind? Yeah, so he's questioning his promise and he's sowing that doubt into their minds and he starts instantly twisting God's words, doesn't he? And he starts making God sound harsh and restrictive. Like, did God actually say that? I mean, come on. That's what he's doing. And he's bringing in that subtle doubt, not only doubting what God has said, but God himself. Is he really good if he is saying, you can't have that one tree? I mean, look at it. It was good for the eyes and looked delicious. It looked amazing. It wasn't like this poisonous apple that you could just like, you knew, oh man, that's bad. Um, But he's instantly sowing this doubt about God's goodness saying, you know, like, that sounds really harsh and restrictive of God to say that. But, you know, instead of actually doing what they were supposed to do in guarding the garden and cultivating it and tossing out anyone who would break that sacred thing, that, that sacred covenant of works and the sacred place, they are kind of drawn in and they respond. And, you know, Eve's response starts off really good and she corrects the serpent who twists God's word and his prohibition, but then she does something else and she adds to the command. What, what is the command that she adds that we haven't read about? What is the command that she says that God actually didn't say? Touching the fruit, yep. So she says that God forbade Adam and Eve from even touching the fruit, but that's, not even, that's nowhere in the text that we see. Um, and the serpent, when he hears that, he knows he has Adam and Eve right where he wants them. And this is where he kind of can add his knockout punch if he's in the ring with them. He says, you will not surely die. And he starts directly accusing God of lying. Satan is, he's in these doubts about God's goodness 
he's saying that God, by denying them what they want, isn't really looking out for their interest. That this is restrictive and harsh. And he senses that in Eve's words when Eve herself adds to God's command. You know, like, there's a lot of good things that are out there that God wants us to enjoy, but we oftentimes, because we think, you know, we really need to obey God, we put a, we put a line even around His line. So if we think that, you know, whatever it is, some kind of meat or food or drink is bad, we, we kind of add to God's commands, don't we? He says, you know, don't make an idol out of those things. Don't covet. And so, like, we, we think we're going to improve on God and, like, we're going to really impress Him and we're just going to put more restrictions around those restrictions. And that's what Satan, in a sense, and, and Eve were doing here. They are taking those good things and adding things, thinking, like, oh, yeah, God will be really happy with me if I just say, oh, we can't even touch it. And, but that's oftentimes when when Satan attacks, when we start doubting God's goodness and what he's actually created us for. So interestingly, here in this passage, we actually see a really good example of what all temptation looks like. It's not just Adam and Eve who are in trial here, but it really kind of shows our own hearts and how Satan loves to tempt us with things. Uh, God cuts off something from our reach, saying that's not good for you, that's not good for us. And the two things that we instantly want to do are what Satan's actually saying. You know, he's saying God is restrictive and harsh, and he's also saying that God is not good and, giving, and not giving us those things. So Satan lies, and he's saying that God is lying. That God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve, she fails the test and she believes the lies of the serpent and she eats the fruit. And then what she does is then she passes it on to Adam, who, by the way, is like standing there the whole time. Like the, the scene is like, she takes the fruit and she's like, oh, here you go. So, so Adam was there the entire time and just letting this whole thing unfold and happen. And he's just silent. And so this is how sin enters the world. Adam and Eve start doubting God's goodness, and they don't think that he's given them everything that they need for life and happiness, for godliness, for eternity, and for meaning and fulfillment. And that is really what Satan tries to do with us, isn't it? Um... We really think that X, Y, or Z is going to give us happiness or fulfillment. Like that car is going to give us the life that we want, which is what the commercial says. You know, like that when we go around shopping at the mall, our hearts instantly are being said that, you know, this one thing, is go- this one prop is going to give us the good life that we want. And it's not to say we don't go to the mall, we don't buy a car, but the instant posture of our heart is, is covetousness because of what Adam and Eve had done, that they started doubting God's goodness. And that, that is why it's the treason that we see here is of cosmic proportion, and God says it deserves death. Um, they're effectively saying to God that they wish 
that He were dead and that they want to have eternity without Him. That they can do things on their own terms and they can get by. You know, like the Frank Sinatra song, like, I did it my way. And I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the, 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 the captain of my destiny. And I can raise my fist to the heavens and shake it at God. So they desire to overthrow God and overthrow His rule of the universe because being second in command wasn't good enough. And they wanted unrestrained autonomy and power, just like Satan. Um, and this is really like a picture of our own hearts, isn't it? Like this is a picture of what the stories that we're being discipled in the drama that we're being told and living in is saying to us. That's what we're being taught and catechized in. It's not a question of whether or not we're being catechized, whether or not we're being you know, indoctrinated. Everyone is. And this is why we constantly need to see through the Scriptures, through God's Word, what we're actually saying, what we're actually doing. Um, so instead of obeying God, we often want to decide how we should best live our lives on our own. So at the heart of sin is not only the rejection of God's law, that is really important, but it's the rejection of who He is as good, who He is as supremely loving, and that we're saying we don't want His generosity. Um, but if we truly believed that God was good and had our best interests in mind, we would naturally want to obey Him without questioning. But we struggle, all of us do. We struggle with that very thing. And we turn to other things thinking that they're going to satisfy us, thinking as they're, they're going to give us that eternity that our hearts are made for. They're going to fill that eternal hole that only God can really fill. And... Like Adam and Eve, we're trying to fill it with all those things to find our joy and our satisfaction and fulfillment. And because we're all born of Adam and Eve, we have all likewise committed that cosmic treason. And because of that, it's breaks, it breaks our relationship with God. It creates estrangement where guilt and shame now cover us. And we can't live in the world that God had initially created us for. And that relationship being broken starts breaking down our relationships with each other. And there's loneliness and pain and suffering and disappointment that fill the world. And that's what we see, the estrangement we see in uh, verse 8 and following in Genesis 3. And so they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this thing that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, so I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In your pain in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which have I commanded you, that you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So here we see the consequence for all that they did. The consequence for sin is death. But the interesting thing is that Adam and Eve didn't just drop dead. Like that's like really the shocking thing in this passage is that God had said that the day you eat of it you shall die. But they didn't drop dead on the spot just because they ate of the fruit. And what we see is that the consequence for that sin is being carried out, but God is also instantly opening a space for his promise to come back in, for him to show that his grace and his mercy even right on the heels of their sin uh, as a place that God instantly says, like, all these evil things are going to happen, but he wedges his promise right in the middle of it that even though they've done all these things, he's creating a, a space and, and, and time for redemption to happen. So if God had instantly executed his justice like we deserved, there would have been no time for redemption. And this just like shows again how, and again and again how generous God is. That even in the midst of him basically dealing out the curse, he's saying, okay, I'm not going to bring ultimate eternal death to you right now. There's going to be estrangement, there's going to be judgment, but I'm giving you this time, this space for salvation to come. I'm giving you time and space for redemption. Uh, And what we see in the following section is that God then sends Adam and Eve out of the garden and he shuts the the gate. He closes it behind them and they have no entrance to the tree of life. They have no way to go back into that special fellowship and place, that garden that God had created them for. And he says that death is ultimately what is going to happen. That Adam and Eve are going to have this childbearing pain. Woman's going to experience these things. Adam's going to have this toilsome labor. But eventually they're going to go back to the dust of the earth and die. And what we see here is like that this estrangement from God, that broken kind of fellowship, is ultimately the, the biggest judgment They were being cast off from God's presence. And God is separating us from His holy presence as a good father. 
And no, we're no longer having that relationship with a good father. Now he's a judge. Now he's, his holy presence is something we can't even abide because of sin. And that sin and that guilt brings that separation and estrangement. But God, on the heels of those very judgments, as we said, he's bringing this promise. And that's why we desperately you know, need a Savior That's why we desperately need someone to come in from outside of the world, from from the earth, from the heavens, to bring us back into that relationship with God. If you guys don't have Genesis 3.15, that passage that we read, highlighted in your Bibles, I really recommend it. Because that's probably the biggest programmatic passage in the Bible that just sets the stage for everything else. I'm going to read it again. It says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, praise God that even in the midst of this very, the darkest hour of humanity and human history, God just instantly injects hope for Adam and Eve and hope for us. He makes this promise that this reconciliation is going to happen. He's going to do, if you hear, what Adam should have done. Adam should have just taken that Satan by his, you know, his hiney and ripped him out of the garden and kicked him out and smashed on his head. Like, that's what Adam should have done. But God is like, no, I'm going to send someone who's going to do that. He's going to bruise my son's heel, but I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. God instantly comes in and he takes the alliance that Adam and Eve had with the devil and he breaks it apart, and he starts restoring them and rec- reconciling them even now. And this passage, Genesis 3.15, is the promise that echoes throughout the entire Bible. Every promise, every hope of a Messiah and redemption comes out of this one passage. And that's why the, the many people call it the proto-evangelium, meaning proto like prototype, like the first, and Evangelium, which is where we get the word good news or gospel. So this is the first, the prototype of God's gospel promise, where he says, I'm going to do this. You know, before, in the covenant of works, God says, you shall do this, or you shall die. But in the promise of the gospel, it's all unconditional. He's saying, I will do this. I will send someone. I will promise you the seed and he's going to do this for you because you no longer can. And this is the first time that the gospel appears in the Bible. And God is doing that thing that Adam should have done by bringing us back to heaven. He's bringing heaven to earth as the seed. Um, and that's going to be the main themes that we're going to come constantly be tracing out is there's two battle lines that are being drawn in the Bible. You have the seed of the serpent, the devil, constantly propping up. And then the seed of the woman. And that's going to be the battle lines that we're constantly seeing throughout Scripture all the way from Genesis even into the New Testament where 
The seed of the serpent is trying to crush that promise. The seed of the serpent is going out and trying to, like Pharaoh in Egypt, he's trying to wipe out all the Israelites, wipe out the people of promise. You have, you have that in Herod. You see the very thing where Herod is coming off and he's trying to crush all the children where the Messiah was going to be born. And you have that also, that, that other line that's going throughout the whole Bible, whether it's through, as we'll see, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the fathers of Israel, all the way to David into the New Covenant, this one promise that God is constantly doing. He's, he's constantly revealing to us. Someone needs to come and bring heaven back to earth and restore that broken relationship. Um, so as we, before we close, so what are some things that we have learned about sin from this Genesis account? Any thoughts or ideas that, we've, that you've been thinking about while we've been talking? What have we learned about sin from Genesis? Does it reveal to you maybe some of the things that are working in your own heart and, or some of the things that you see around you and the kind of temptations that you experience? I know that, that they do me. Uh, that this is very much how God is constantly tempting us, tempting myself. That He's constantly saying, you know, like, if I just had this one thing in my life, that that will give me true happiness. But I'm not looking at God and saying, thank you for everything that you've given me. That he's given me more than I need. But I'm oftentimes wanting more, filled with wanting the thing that maybe God has put off limits. Um, and these are the strategies. This is why we go through the passages like this, because we see how Satan is still at his same method. Satan is still using these very same things to, to knock us down. And these are the kind of things that Satan is going to be doing for the rest of our lives. And we constantly need this promise, the, the Proto-Evangelium, the Gospel promise, where God is breaking that, that alliance apart that we might make. And He's restoring us back to Himself. Uh, so, just quickly in summary for this week, so the four things that I think we should kind of lock down from what we talked about is the first one is this understanding of what the covenant of works is. So God gave Adam those specific commands and he gave him those prohibitions of, what, of not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But if he succeeded and obeyed, he would bring heaven to earth and he would taste of the tree of life and have that immortality and eternal life that he's promised. And, but that is the thing that he, he failed to do. So he broke that covenant with God, that sacred vow. And God, the second thing, he, he, God injects the gospel promise even in the midst of the curses that we hear. Uh, Genesis 3.15, that programmatic passage for the whole Bible. God is going to provide the victory and the Savior to defeat Satan and to restore our relationship and estrangement from Him. And that is true Eve, and it's also true for us. Adam and Eve go on to believe that promise, and they are saved by that. They are saved by resting in what God had said, in His very Word. Like, they couldn't do anything to bring about their own salvation. They couldn't do anything. They just had to wait for that promise to come about. And it's the same for us. We 
couldn't do anything. It's while we were enemies and dead in our trespasses and sin that Christ died for us. It's when we couldn't do anything. That was actually what God said was the right time. Isn't that, isn't that isn't that's like a wonderful thing? It's like at the right time was when we couldn't do anything. And that's when Christ came. Um, so the third thing is that death is ultimately this estrangement we have with God. Our act of treason brought about that estrangement and being kicked out from his holy presence, from his presence as a as a good father, but now we have him only as judge because sin has broken that that relationship, which is the gospel is is repairing. And then the big thing was that that ultimately temptation is the sin behind all other sins is doubting God's goodness. Like that is really where it begins. It it doesn't begin with you know just wanting that fancy new dress or that car or this life or that life, but it's really doubting God's goodness, his provision and that love that we were made for. Um that ultimately God's commands, his law for us isn't arbitrary. It isn't because he's got the superior firepower and we just have to obey him, you know. But it's because his commands flow from his goodness that he created us a certain way, he created us for something and a certain goal and it's an outworking of his goodness for us that we were created in this way and he commands it because he knows that's how we actually should live. And that's what human flourishing should look like. Um, so, uh, and next week, we're going to go over, we're just going to talk a little bit more about how, what, that, what original sin looks like and how, what guilt and corruption and shame actually look like in our lives and how very much those things are just pictured for us in Genesis 3. Uh, I think it's just really helpful to break those things down because then it also sees, we also can see how the gospel takes care of all of those things. It's the triple cure for our triple problem of guilt, shame, and corruption. And all of those wonderful things are resolved in the cross. Any questions or thoughts as we conclude the, today's lesson? Or any comments, anything at all? Yes. Sure. So the question is, since God didn't execute his justice, didn't execute his word by bringing instant death to Adam and Eve, um, how does that basically jive with what he said? Is he being false or is he twisting his own words? Um, well, I would say that in a, in a real sense, like they already did experience spiritual death. So maybe not the physical death that that they did deserve completely, but they did experience spiritual death and estrangement when God levels the curse and when they experience that instant shame and guilt. That they had a broken relationship with God and spiritual death is what leads to physical death in many ways. That, that guilt is what leads to our corruption, not the other way around. So them dying later on physically was just an outworking of their spiritual death that they did experience. Does that help? Yeah, so 
that was like the first death that they kind of were going through. And, um, and in many ways, we, but we do see God's grace and mercy by not instantly bringing the physical death. And I think that's kind of like, he's, he's opening up space for redemption, a time of redemption to happen. Cool. Good question. Any other thoughts or comments? Well, let's pray to conclude as we get ready for worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, even though we hear so many hard things in it, and it can be it can jostle us and be frustrating at times to see our own sin and temptation on display. And it can be really discouraging uh, to see how Adam and Eve acted and how we do the same exact thing in our, in our sin. Uh, but we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us to our own devices or just to that judgment, but you provide a way back into fellowship with you and you deal with our guilt and shame and corruption in Jesus, your Son. So we thank you and praise you for him and we pray that you prepare our hearts for worship as we come to come into your presence and experience the joy of your salvation. And whose name is your son's name we pray. Amen.